This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Do we retreat or do we fight? I say we fight. November 8th, 2016 did not go exactly as Kamala Harris had expected. The victory speech she'd planned to give wasn't going to work. Through the course of the night, it became apparent what was happening nationally. And um, I was, I just, I went out there and, and kind of just riffed on what I felt at that moment, which is we must fight. It was late in the evening, even on the West Coast. She had just won her race for the Senate. At the same time, Donald Trump became the clear winner for the presidency. As she told me in an interview in her office in 2018. Part of the reason we were shocked was time because we were also aware of what this win would mean based on the way the campaign had been run for you know, over a year. The contrasts of that night would set the tone for the next four years. Kamala Harris's time in Washington has largely been defined by her opposition to President Trump, his policies, and his surrogates. This groundbreaking former prosecutor, the daughter of immigrants, became known as one of the most reliable no-votes against Trump's nominees and one of the fiercest questioners of his cabinet, like Attorney General Jeff Sessions. So I need to be correct as best I can. I do want you to be honest. I'm not able to uh, be rushed this fast. It makes me nervous. She launched a presidential campaign based on the idea that Americans would want to see her go toe-to-toe with Trump. And when that fell short, she came to be seen as an inevitable choice as Joe Biden's running mate. You ready to go to work? Oh my God, I'm so ready to go to work. But it also set up a tension for those trying to figure out who she was. Was she the progressive resistance fighter from election night 2016? Or was she a longtime law enforcement operative who inspired the hashtag Kamala is a cop? Yes or no? Daughter of Oakland, California. Sir, I'm, not, I'm asking a question. I say we fight. And that little girl was me. I'm Tal Copen. I'm Joe Garofoli. And this is Chronicle. Who is Kamala Harris? Episode 5. That little girl from Berkeley goes to Washington. Do you solemnly swear to support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic? Even before Kamala Harris officially became Senator Harris in January 2017, the spotlight was shining on her. He's charged the duty job upon which you're about to enter to help you guys. I do. I don't have to tell my <laughs> Her election night speech got her attention, and so did her background. Even in 2015, the Washington Post had asked, is Kamala Harris the next Obama? But as much as being a woman of color put her on the shortlist for superstardom, The flip side of that is always greater scrutiny. She is only the second Black woman and the second Asian American woman ever to serve in the U.S. Senate. When she arrived, she was one of only three Black senators, one of only two Asian Americans. In fact, when I was reporting this podcast, my list of potential interviews on this subject was pretty short. There are just so many people who understand what it means to be an only in the Senate. Catherine Cortez Masto of Nevada is a longtime friend of Harris. 
They were state attorneys general at the same time, and they were both elected to the Senate in 2016. Cortez Masto has a similar list of descriptors as Harris, one of only four Hispanic senators and the first Latina ever to serve. Well, I will tell you, it was exciting, I think, for both of us because we realized uh, we were bringing different voices to the table that were normally underrepresented uh, to really now be at the table, be involved in making good policy that represents everyone. And I know that's how Kamala uh, felt. That's how I felt. And I I know she felt uh, uh, strongly about making sure that so many who are underrepresented across this country, that their voices are heard. You see it in in her legislation. Another longtime friend is Cory Booker of New Jersey. He'd started recruiting Harris to run for the Senate as rumors of Barbara Boxer's retirement were just beginning to float around in 2014. He says he knew she'd be a formidable senator. Harris likes the joke that Booker didn't want to be the only black Democrat in the upper chamber anymore. When I came to the United States Senate, I was stunned by how little diversity there was. It was at least the first place I'd ever worked. And so this, this was the environment that Kamala was coming into. And I knew that she would hit the Senate floor and change the institution just by joining it. Harris also quickly gained a reputation for her questioning style. The moment in time lent itself to her courtroom training and cross-examination. Trump was filling a cabinet and his nominees had to go before the Senate for confirmation hearings. Harris got high-profile assignments on the Intelligence and Homeland Security Committees. The pace was relentless from day one. Trump unveiled a slew of policy changes, including a number of hardline immigration orders that Harris was quick to address. On top of that, and it might already be hard to remember sometimes, the public was just beginning to learn the extent of Russian contacts with members of the Trump campaign. One of those campaign contacts? Jeff Sessions, who was by then confirmed as attorney general. In a series of cascading events that included the firing of the FBI director, James Comey, Sessions recused himself from anything to do with the investigation into Russia's election interference, and his deputy appointed a special counsel to conduct the investigation. As Robert Mueller began his work, members of Congress had some questions for Sessions, including some from Intelligence Committee member Kamala Harris that made him, quote, nervous. Did you have any communication with any Russian businessmen or any Russian nationals? I don't believe I had any conversation with Russian businessmen or Russian nationals. Are you aware Although of any communication? A lot of people were at the convention. It's conceivable that somebody sir, came sir, up to me. Sir, I have just a few. Well, you let me qualify it. If, okay. if I don't qualify it, you'll accuse me of lying. So I need to be correct as best I can. I do want you to be honest. I'm not able to uh, be rushed this fast. It makes me nervous. Sometimes her style caused those nominees and officials to bristle as it did with Homeland Security Secretary John Kelly in June 2017. So, so are you aware that there are do, local do law enforcement... finish once before you interrupt me? Sir, I, with all due respect... With all due respect, Senator. So when Senator, they're, where, when they're instructed... Once, excuse Senator, me, I, I'm asking the questions. But I'm trying to answer the question. Okay, before I start to answer, will you let me finish? And when North Carolina Senator Richard Burr cut off her grilling of Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein about whether Mueller was protected from firing. The, yes or no, sir? He, he has the full independence that is authorized by those regulations. Are Senator, you willing said, to do as has been the, done before? Would the senator suspend? The chair is going to exercise its right to allow the witnesses to answer the question. As you likely know already, her experience with witnesses who tried to interrupt her would come in handy when she found herself as the vice presidential nominee. But we'll get back to that later. 
In 2018, Harris was added to the Judiciary Committee, along with her friend, Cory Booker. That meant she was in place for the confirmation hearings of Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh. When Christine Blasey Ford, a Palo Alto University professor, alleged that Kavanaugh had sexually assaulted her in high school, Harris was one of the loudest voices calling for an investigation. The FBI did conduct a background investigation into you before we were aware of these most recent allegations. So are you willing to ask the White House to do that and say yes or no and then we can move on? I've had six background investigations over 26 years. As it relates to the recent allegations, are you willing to have them do it? The the witness testimony is before you. No witness who was there supports that I was there. Okay, I'm going to take that as a no and we can move on. She also grilled Kavanaugh on issues that could come before the court, exchanges that were among the most viewed clips on C-SPAN that year. Can you think of any laws that give the government the power to make decisions about the male body. I'm not, a, I'm not a thinking of any right now, Senator. And she challenged officials like Kirsten Nielsen, the Secretary of Homeland Security. How do you reconcile the IG report with your testimony this morning? We do this not morning? detain children. What we do is when we apprehend them at a border patrol station, we process them. And as soon as there is room in an HHS facility, we transfer them. Because of the So vast does the processing involve detention? We, it's not detention facility. Do they stay in CBP custody? Do they spend the night there? We are not able to, under the law, put them anywhere else. So we will care for them until bed space opens at a detention facility at HHS. In other words, you do detain children. And Ron Vitello, the acting head of ICE. Sir, how can you be the head of an agency and be unaware of how your agency is perceived by certain communities? There is a lot of perceptions in the media and in the public that are incorrect about the agency. But the perception exists, would you agree? Whether or not it's correct. And wouldn't you agree then that if that perception exists, there might need to be some work done to correct the perception? Cory Booker has a front row seat when Harris grills someone. So does Maisie Hirono of Hawaii. The three sit together at the end of the row of Democrats in the Judiciary Committee, reflecting their low seniority on the panel. They're also the only non-white members on the Democratic side, and their junior status means they take their questioning turns last. Maisie Hirono. When she came onto the Judiciary Committee along with Cory Booker, I was really happy because I was the only person of color on the Democratic side on that committee. I was really happy to be joined by the two of them, and she referred to us as the POCs. I think what's interesting on that committee is I know that there are a lot of people who wait for the questioning to get to the three of us, because I think we do bring a a different, uh, obviously we're very different looking, so often we'll ask very different questions. Cory Booker. And it's sort of like you're sitting next to somebody and you're wincing, (laughs) Uh, you know, when she's going in on somebody with professionalism and um, decorum and the person's trying to respond with professionalism. But it's like I almost forget that I'm on camera too a lot of those times, and I'm, and, I, and my reactions often like ooh, ouch, <laughs> like like that must hurt. <laughs> Booker and Hirono both say that the three of them can communicate with just a look, and they also whisper and pass notes, few of which either wanted to share on the record. Hirono also said that she'll sometimes get notes from the staff of Diane Feinstein, the top Democrat on the committee or even from Senate Democratic leader Chuck Schumer, asking her to follow up on something that hasn't been adequately addressed by earlier questioners. Harris may make those rounds of questioning look easy, 
But Hirono says prepping for those hearings takes time. To prepare for Kavanaugh, we didn't even get all of the documents that we should have gotten. And then about 150,000 documents were deemed committee confidential. So we couldn't, we supposedly were not able to uh, refer to them in our questioning, et cetera. There's a lot of work. I think I had 14 binders that we put together for the Kavanaugh hearings. It requires a, a tremendous amount of work on the part of the staff. As Harris's profile rose and her progressive streak in voting intensified, a presidential campaign seemed almost an inevitability. So when she announced her candidacy in January 2019, she was quickly a frontrunner. With faith in God, with fidelity to country, and with the fighting spirit I got from my mother, I stand before you today to announce my candidacy for President of the United States. Chronicle columnist Otis Taylor Jr. and I were both there in Oakland when Harris announced her candidacy before 20,000 people in front of Oakland City Hall. And, as she pointed out, not far from Kaiser Hospital, where she was born. I'm sure you felt it. It it was electric. I mean, I haven't felt that kind of energy from a crowd since seeing um, Barack Obama speak in 2008 in his stadium. You felt, um, from old to young, just this this hope, this, I, I see myself in a position that, you know, I didn't know would come. And I really, really enjoyed walking around and seeing all these smiles on, on the faces of women of all races, all ethnicities. But there was something missing from the scene and from Harris's speech. On the day that Kamala Harris announced her candidacy, the homeless people were swept out. I understand that. You've got to make the production. You have all these television cameras there. You have all these journalists and you have 20,000 people there. What I had an issue with is that homeless people weren't mentioned in the speech. And, and here's, here's this. If you're going to claim Oakland, you have to claim one of Oakland's biggest problems right now, and that's homelessness. I mean, take it, take it from this angle, is that Black people are roughly 13% of this country's population. Yet, in 2019, they accounted for 40% of the homeless population. From the get-go, Kamala Harris faced skepticism from the progressives she was trying to claim. Representative Barbara Lee of Oakland was one of the first people to endorse Harris in her campaign, as she had when Harris ran for attorney general. Lee is beloved by progressive Democrats, but she says her Harris endorsement was not well-received. So I was very proud of that endorsement, even though I got a lot of pushback, let me tell you, from a lot of progressives who thought that um, that was not the, the best endorsement. But I knew that the time was right for a woman of color to be president and, of course, vice president. Black women, for the most part, are progressive and may not meet quite the same criteria of progressiveness as others. And so that's been a constant discussion I've had in terms of how race plays into being progressive. And I've had some, some very close friends who are, who are constituents call me personally and just took, just took me to task. Just don't even speak to me to this day because I supported her. And I said, well, we've got to look at her as a woman of color. What does that mean in terms of being progressive? 
And, and so this is a constant issue we deal with in the progressive movement, how you embrace black people and brown people uh, who don't quite measure up to that test. Much like committee hearings, the debate stage offered a chance for Harris to show off the oratorical skills forged in the courtroom. She flashed them against the man she would share the ticket with months later, Joe Biden. In June 2019, Harris landed her most memorable moment of the campaign, after Biden had spoken highly of working with segregationists in the Senate. You also worked with them to oppose busing. And, you know, there was a little girl in California who was part of the second class to integrate her public schools. And she was bused to school every day. And that little girl was me. She also flashed a sharp wit. Even before the first Democratic debate, there was speculation that she would be an eventual choice for vice president. She was asked about it. I think that, sure, if people want to speculate about running mates, I encourage that because I think that Joe Biden would be a great running mate. But her past as a prosecutor could be a liability as well as an asset. And the boost she got in the polls after her attack on Biden in June put a target on her back when the candidates met again in July. Hawaii Representative Tulsi Gabbard took aim. Senator Harris says she's proud of her record as a prosecutor and that she'll be a prosecutor president, but I'm deeply concerned about this record. There are too many examples to cite, but she put over 1,500 people in jail for marijuana violations and then laughed about it when she was asked if she ever smoked marijuana. She blocked evidence. She blocked evidence that would have freed an innocent man from death row until the courts forced her to do so. She kept people in prison beyond their sentences to use them as cheap labor for the state of California. And she fought to keep cash bail system in place that impacts poor people in the worst kind of way. Thank you, Congresswoman. Uh, Senator Harris, your response? Biden attacked as well, honing in on Harris's struggles to explain her position on health care. The senator's had several plans so far. And uh, anytime someone tells you you're going to get something good in 10 years, you should wonder why it takes 10 years. If you notice, there's no talk about the fact that the plan in 10 years will cost $3 trillion. And to be very blunt and to be very straightforward, you can't beat President Trump with double talk on this plan. By September, Harris's poll numbers had fallen and her campaign was restructuring. They decided to invest their time and money heavily in Iowa, hoping the first state to vote in the primary could propel her forward. She became scarce in the Senate, but not before a memorable exchange with her colleague Maisie Hirono outside the Capitol. I looked at her and said, oh, Kamala, you're going to Iowa now. She looked at me. And so back in the day when we could hug each other, uh, she gave me a big hug and said, I'm fucking moving to Iowa. And there was a reporter nearby who heard that and he tweeted it out and it went viral. And there was a t-shirt manufacturer who produced a lot of t-shirts and Kamala made sure that I had one, which by the way, my husband wears in Hawaii in public. He's very proud of it. (laughs) Ultimately, the investment in Iowa was not enough. And after press reports about poor management in her campaign, staff overhauls, and dwindling money, Harris dropped out of the race in December. The Democratic field had been historically diverse, but by March, it was down to two white men, Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders. Chronicle columnist Phil Mateer, who has covered Harris since her first campaign for district attorney, has a theory about what went wrong. Once you hit the national stage, one word, one statement, one this, one that can completely... uh, send you up and then send you right back down again. And she wasn't prepped for that. Uh, 
And, you know, she was coming out. She wasn't known well. She made a good uh, entrance. And then when it came for the, the second stage of the rocket to go, it sort of flared out. And she just wasn't ready for it. Representative Barbara Lee said it was an example of how much harder it is for women, and especially women of color, in the political arena. The issues that um, may, some man may not have been real uh, ended up on the front page of the new, newspapers. And then as a result of that, of course, those donors became very uh, squeamish about their support, where for other candidates, had this been on the front page, they would have figured out a way to, to push back on, on the media, and then secondly, to keep donating to, those to the campaign if they really believed in that individual. And so I saw this very clearly, uh, and it really infuriated me because I saw the issues of, of race and gender play out. Uh, in a way that um, should not have played out in a country where uh, diversity and racial justice and racial equity should be a value that we care about. Cory Booker pointed out that when eventual 2004 nominee John Kerry's campaign was struggling in similar ways, including trying to double down on Iowa, there was one key difference. He was able to lend $5 million to his campaign, an option not available to Harris. Booker says there's something wrong with a system that doesn't allow a qualified candidate to even reach the voters. But what really surprised me about the day that she dropped out was how many of the Black women in my life um, that were supporters of mine were reaching out to me who felt so personally harmed. Like just really, it was a moment where I heard people openly questioning whether a black woman in America could get a fair shake. But Harris's departure from the race didn't mean she faded into obscurity. Far from it. She returned to the Senate just in time for an impeachment trial that ended in February of 2020 and had become ancient history by March. More on that in the final episode of Chronicled. The producer of Chronicled is King Kaufman. Artwork and design by Tam Duong, Danielle Mollett-Parks, and Yoli Martinez. Thanks to Tim O'Rourke, Erica Carlos, and Karen Creighton. Chronicled is a production of the San Francisco Chronicle. For full access, visit sfchronicle.com slash pod. <laughs>